Hey, good morning, everybody. Man, I'm really glad to be back. I missed you guys last week. This is the point where everybody's supposed to say we missed you, not just Peter. <laughs> well, I did miss you, though. That's a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, this is an awesome church, and I'm really thankful to be part of it. And let me just say on behalf of Brian and Lisa and myself, this is Pastor Appreciation Month. We're very thankful for all of you who have been so vocal with your appreciation of us, maybe the, the cards, the gifts, the, uh, just all of it. We just really appreciate it. We're thankful to be a part of this church, to work hard with you, alongside you, for you, all of that. And, and, and I, I, I think you guys are great at this. It's important that a church, wherever the church is, uh, show appreciation to her leaders. That's one of the things the Bible actually commands us to do, is to, to support and encourage those who work hard among us as leaders. So we feel it. Thank you very much. And like I said, I'm very glad to be back here. Um, I just I want to affirm you in something. I loved coming into church this morning and seeing so many of you coming in early and talking to each other and hanging around. And some of you, if you just have an opportunity and you don't have to be anywhere after church, remember, we've got this theater until 12 o'clock. So my encouragement to you is just stay and talk to each other. Look for somebody you don't know and talk to them. That's part of who we are. We're here to connect. And so don't get in like tunnel vision. I got to get into church. I got to get home. The cards game's coming on or whatever. Just, you've got freedom to stay and talk to each other, so take advantage of that if you would. And uh, go Cardinals, right? So uh, we're in chapter 17 of the story. We're like just a little bit over halfway through the big picture of the Bible. I think it's going great. I really do. I love getting the big picture view of what God's doing and how he's got this upper story and how all the, the little stories of the Bible and even our stories play into that big story of what God's doing and what he's going to do in the world. I love it. And so we're about halfway through the story. We're right now, we're in the, the warning label section of the Bible, the prophets of God, where God is like trying to give people a heads up. You need to change the direction of your life before it's too late, which is how God works, right? I don't think anybody who has, anybody who thinks God just immediately smites with no warning, they got the wrong idea. God always wants to give people a chance to change the direction of their lives. Like before there's tragedy or before devastation occurs or before severe consequences kick in, God's going to send a warning and say, please change the direction that you're going in. And in the Old Testament, that came in the form of the prophets. Not that it did any good. Nobody listened, but that's what God always does. He tries to give a warning and say, hey, turn around. You're going the wrong way. So did you hear about that woman last winter, speaking of going the wrong way, uh, in Belgium, who got faulty directions from her GPS? Uh, this is crazy. She lives in Belgium. She was going to go pick up a friend two hours north at a train station in Brussels. So she puts the train station in GPS and starts following the directions. Instead of going two hours north, her GPS took her 900 miles south. A two-hour trip became a two-day trip as the GPS kept saying, turn here, turn here. This poor woman crossed at least three and maybe as many as five international borders in this trip. She drove two days. She got gassed twice. She had a minor accident. She slept on the side of the road. I mean, at what point do you not realize you're going the wrong way? She said, I just got distracted. I just kept following the thing. I'm like, I got to get there eventually. And she said, first, the, the traffic signs were in French, and then they were in German. And she said, I finally realized, because she ended up in Croatia. She said, when I, when I arrived in Zagreb, I realized, I don't think I'm in Belgium anymore. <laughs> really, is that the first clue you had? <laughs> That, that you're in Zagreb, that you're not where you need to be, a two-hour trip into a two-day trip. As we've been going through the, the prophets of the Old Testament, 
The problem we've seen with the people of Israel over and over is they end up in idolatry. It's like they're Croatia. No matter what they do, they seem to end up in the wrong place. They ended up there the same reason this woman ended up in, in Zagreb. They were following faulty GPS. Just turn here, turn here, turn here. Their GPS that Israel was following were two things. It was their, their kings, their leadership, and the culture around them. You know, you've got kings like Solomon who should have known better, taking the people into idolatry. You've got Jeroboam, again, who should have known better. You've got Ahab. These kings are, are leading the people of Israel to worship false idols. And so the people, in a sense, were just playing follow the leader. Our leaders are telling us to do this. The other thing was the cultures around them didn't help anything at all. The people of Israel would look and go, well, they have lots of gods, and they bow down to those idols, and they have, why don't we have lots of gods? You know, we're missing out on something here. And God's like, no, that's the point. You're not supposed to look at them and go, we, why can't we be like them? They're supposed to look at you with the one true God and go, why can't we be like them? The people had this reversed. And here's the thing. If you really think about it, you'll understand this is true. When your leaders are idolatrous and when everyone around you is just worshiping idols, that just seems normal. It just seems like what you're supposed to do, just what you grew up with. We, of course, we, we bow down to this statue. We pray to this little G God. That's just what we do. It seemed very normal. What the people needed was like an alternate voice. They needed someone to say, hey, I know what the conventional wisdom is, but there's another way to live your life. And that's what the prophets were. They were like a voice from God saying, this is not right. And so here's what God's prophets would tell the people. Putting your hope in a little G God, bowing down to a statue, that's just dumb. I mean, really. Brian talked last week about Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah preached a sermon once about how dumb it is to worship idols. This is in Isaiah 44. He says, here's what happens. This is Isaiah 44, 16. He says, a carpenter goes out in the woods, he cuts a tree down, just picture this, and he takes half the tree and he cuts it up into firewood, makes a fire, cooks dinner. Then he takes the other half of the tree that he cut down, he makes an idol out of it, and then he starts bowing down to it, worshiping and saying, help me, save me, you're my God. And then Isaiah says this in verse 19, no one stops to think. They really don't. At some point, does it not occur to you that you're worshiping something that your Uncle Billy Bob made out in the garage? When you're bowing down to that telephone pole asking for help, do you really think there's somebody on the other end of that phone call? Really? You made this with your own hands, and you're going to ask it for help? It's just dumb. That's what Isaiah would say. This is just dumb, people. And Isaiah would say it to the people of Israel, and they wouldn't get it. Isaiah was just trying to tell them idolatry is replacing the one true God with something that can never help you and they can never satisfy you. And that's not just something that people way back then did. When any of us worship anything for God, we are replacing the one true God who can satisfy with something that can never help us and never can fulfill us. It's like I said two weeks ago, and I think Heinrich told you last week, idolatry is like turkey bacon. It's a poor substitute for the real thing. Speaking of bacon, i got to tell you, this has nothing to do with the sermon now. <laughs> just, just know that. But it is Halloween this week, so it's appropriate. If you're looking for some fall decor for the trick-or-treaters coming to your door, get rid of the jack-o'-lantern. You need a bake-o'-lantern. Put this on your front porch and see the kids come. There you go. Turkey bacon is a poor substitute for the real thing. Idolatry is just a poor substitute for worshiping God. But the people did it over and over. And you know one of the dangers for you and I as we sit here and as I stand here in 2013 is that we can look at all this and go, yeah, this doesn't really apply to me in 2013. Because, I mean, come on, when's the last time you saw someone actually bowing down to something and worshiping it? And Really? People just don't do that anymore. And so it would be very easy for us to say, you know, it's great to learn about this, but it doesn't really apply to my life. But here's the thing. 
One of the last things the Apostle John told some Christians, and this is New Testament, this is not way back in the Old Testament, this is modern times, New Testament. He said this in 1 John 5.21, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Apparently John thought it is a problem that Christians need to be aware of. So can idolatry really be a problem for people in 2013 in the modern era? I want you to think about something that Martin Luther once said about the Ten Commandments. Martin Luther said you can really only break the last eight of the Ten Commandments after you've broken the first two. Now, some of you are like going, okay, but I can't remember what the first two are, so you're going to have to help me out here. What are the first two commandments? First one, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Right. And the second command, you shall not make for yourself any graven image or an idol. Right. And so Martin Luther says you only break the last eight commands after you've broken those first two. When you make something other than God, your God, make something other than God more important than you, that's when you start stealing and killing and lying, committing adultery, dishonoring your parents, breaking the Sabbath. You made something else too important in your life, and you break those other commands. So is idolatry really a problem in 2013? You might say, well, I don't have a problem with idolatry. It's not a struggle for me. I have never been tempted to bow down to a statue and ask it for help. I mean, I'm telling you that. It's true for me, too. But can I ask you a question? And you don't have to raise your hand to this, but is there anyone in here who struggles with materialism? Do you, do you maybe say, yeah, I struggle with being content. I know sometimes I look at people and I see what they've got that I don't, and I'm jealous. And maybe you would say in your most honest moments, I crave more and I'm not satisfied with what I've got. And Look, I'm not judging you. I think probably all of us have been there. Welcome to America. But... What's really going on there? Isn't it true that at some point what you're doing is putting something other than God on the throne of your heart? And you're saying, this is where I'm going to find satisfaction in my life. This is where I'm going to, when I get this or that or what they've got, then I'll be happy. And yeah, it surfaces as the sin of materialism or greed or jealousy, but man, at the heart of it, like, like Brian read in that scripture from Colossians, it's just greed. It's just idolatry at the very core of it all. You might say in your most honest moments that your struggle is not with idolatry, that it's maybe with lust. And that's your struggle that you really worry about and pray about. And just think about this for a moment. At its core, what is lust but just an obsession with sexual pleasure? And so what you're doing is you're, you're worshiping that instead of worshiping God. You're making that your ultimate good, and that's idolatry. First Corinthians 6.20 says, Christians are called upon to honor God with their bodies. Like our bodies are literally the temple of the Holy Spirit, so we honor God. We obey our master Jesus Christ because we belong to him, not to ourselves. But we don't want to make that an idol in our lives. And I don't know. You might say my struggle is not any of that. I just, I worry a lot. I'm anxious a lot. Again, I have to believe that at the core of all things, anxiety is a symptom that you've made something other than God, Lord of your heart. And you've put maybe comfort and security on the throne. And you value that very much. And you know that that's too important in your life because anytime God calls you to do something that's uncomfortable or makes you feel insecure, you say, no, thank you. Because at that point, you've elevated those things above God. Do we struggle with idolatry in 2013? Listen, when, it, when you come down to it, an idol is anything that receives the focus, that receives the attention, the devotion, the worship, that is due to God alone. Anything that could be good even, a good thing that becomes too important, more important than God, has become an idol to you and to me. And I think a lot of people deal with that. It's a problem then, it's a problem now. 
So today, we're, we're going to actually di- dive into one of the other prophets, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has a lot to say to his people and really to us about idolatry. And I want to dig into his words because, man, they were helpful 2,500 years ago. I think they're going to be helpful to us today. And before I get into some of his teaching, I really want to put Jeremiah into the historical context. You saw maybe the video that was up here. Let's just put him into the story, where he falls at. Go back in time to the United Kingdom of Israel. You have King Saul, King David, King Solomon. They ruled over a United Kingdom of Israel. Later in Solomon's life, he introduced idolatry to the people of Israel. And God said, as a consequence, I'm going to divide the kingdom. And that happened after Solomon died. The kingdom split. Now you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. In the north, Israel did not have a single good king. They were all bad. They all introduced idolatry to the people. They were horrible. As a consequence of that, God allowed the Assyrians to come in. And in 721 B.C., they just either killed or deported just about everybody. It's the ten lost tribes of Israel. They're gone. Well, the Assyrians got so cocky at how easily they defeated the Israelites. They, they took a look at Judah and they go, hey, why don't we beat them up too? So they invade Judah, and they're going to do the same thing. They're going to try to kill and deport. Thing is, Israel didn't have a single good king. Judah had, in their history, five good God-honoring kings, and one of them was on the throne at this time. If you were here last week, Brian preached about this. Hezekiah, a godly man. Assyria invades. They're coming up against Jerusalem. Hezekiah doesn't go to a little g-god. He doesn't go to an idol and bow down. He goes to the one true God. He says, we need your help. God sends Isaiah the prophet to him. Hezekiah, do not sweat this. There will not even be a single arrow loosed in Jerusalem. I'll take care of this myself. Here's what God did. The Assyrians are camped out. They're getting kind of cocky. Sennacherib's outside Jerusalem, smack talking to everybody. God says, I'll take care of this. He sends a single angel. sends like a Chuck Norris angel to the Assyrian camp. And in one night, this one Chuck Norris angel makes his way through the camp and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in the night. It makes you think about it when Jesus told his disciples later, guys, you don't have to defend me. If I needed help, I could call 10,000 Chuck Norris angels to help me. One angel can kill 185,000. The rest of the Assyrians woke up the next morning who were still alive and were like, what just happened here? They suddenly realized they had very pressing business back home and they took off and there was no battle. In the end, God fought the battle for Hezekiah. And things wonderful. God blesses Judah while Hezekiah is alive. But you know how the story goes. It didn't last, right? Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, was one of the worst kings that ever existed. This is in 2 Kings chapter 21. It says in verse 2, King Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He erected altars to Baal. He made an Asherah pole as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. And then in verse 6, it says, Among all the other horrible things that Manasseh did, he even went so far as to offer his own son as a sacrifice in the fire to an idol. A horrible, horrible man. And he undoes all the good that his dad Hezekiah did. You want to think about it this way? Manasseh becomes yet another broken GPS for his people to follow. And so into this, and, and for the kings who followed after him, there's just more and more degradation till finally God says, I'm going to do for you what I did for your big brother Israel. This time the Babylonians came in. They attacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the walls. They destroyed the temple. A whole lot of people were killed or deported. This was in 586 B.C. Some people were left, and Jeremiah the prophet was one of those people who were left in Jerusalem. And his job from God 
was to speak to the people who were left and to encourage them to repent and turn back to God and stay faithful to him. Again, not that anybody listened. Even after all the devastation they'd gone through, they still refused to listen. I think you may know something about that. Have you ever watched a friend continue down a path of destruction and no matter what you or your family or your friends say to them, they still insist on doing things their own way? It's hard to sit back and watch that, isn't it? That's Jeremiah. He's watching his people drive the car into Croatia. He's watching them drive the car off the cliff. And really, as much as he can do, he can't make them change their ways. He just tries to plead with them, change your ways. Here's the cool thing about Jeremiah you need to understand. He is not a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher. He was not in the people's face every day screaming at them. He was not like the Westboro Baptist Church. He didn't have a picket sign out there going, God hates idolaters. He wasn't doing it. They called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Because Jeremiah would like plead with the people in tears, turn back to God. Again, they wouldn't listen, but he's saying, come on. So you go to Jeremiah, and I want to just show you just a, one of the things that Jeremiah preached. This starts down in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, to Jeremiah, and God said, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, you loved God, you followed me through the desert. Then he goes down to verse 9, though, and he says, but God says, I'm going to bring charges against you again. Again. We've been here before, God says. We've been here a lot, but I'm going to bring charges again. Uh, he says in verse 10, cross over to the coast of Kittim and look, send to Keter and observe closely. See if this has ever been anything like this before. Verse 11, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not even gods at all. But my people have. They've exchanged their glory of God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. Then he gets real specific here. Verse 13. My people have committed two sins. Two sins. One, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That's a, an image here, this this idea of a cistern that would have been very powerful to the people there. You know what a cistern is? If the word's familiar to you. For those of you who kind of go, I think I might know what it is. A cistern is like a hole you dig in the ground that you would store rainwater in for times when you don't have enough water. And this is an idea that's very familiar to Israel because they go at least a half a year with no rain. And so the people there would dig these holes in the ground. They would brick them up and plaster them best they could to store water when it would rain for the times of the, the year when there was no rain. It's just a, a great idea. They ha- they're always digging these. Archaeologists today find thousands of these cisterns all over Israel where people have dug them. I think we have a picture here of one there. Idea, but it wasn't real effective because they were constantly springing leaks. So they're constantly having to dig more holes in the ground and patch the ones up that they had. We actually know something about this here in the United States today. I was reading about the Las Posas project out in California several years ago. Some very smart people said, you know what? Sometimes in the year in, in California, we get way too much rain. We got all that snow melt from the Sierra Nevadas. What if we could store it somewhere for the times of year when we don't have enough water? They found this huge underground basin north of Los Angeles. And the idea was, why don't we divert all this rainwater and snow melt off into here, store it, and then we'll have it for the times of year when we need irrigation water. So... They put billions of dollars into this only to find as they pumped the water into it that it was leaking right back out. Yeah. So they still, I still think it's a great idea. I hope they can get it to work out. God's saying this to the people of Israel. 
And he's making a, a spiritual analogy here. He's not saying it's literally wrong to dig a hole in the ground and save water. It's just smart. But he's saying, spiritually speaking, you guys are digging your own cisterns, and you don't really need to. You're working way too hard here. You don't have to do this, spiritually speaking. You ever dug a hole in the ground? I mean, is that something in your memory bank? You're, it's exhausting, isn't it? Or, or so I'm told. Actually, I've dug lots of holes. Missouri clay, it's like as hard as granite when it's dry, and then it sticks to everything when it's wet, won't come off. That's fun. I've done that. Dug post holes in southern Indiana where you go like an inch down and you hit a boulder. <laughs> You've got to take an iron pick and try to break it up and get it out. That's fun, too. I've dug Appalachian Trail in Tennessee and North Carolina. I've dug trail here in Missouri. I, I've dug. I'm sure you've dug. And it's exhausting. It's a lot of work. And God says, listen, why would you dig holes for water, holes that aren't even going to hold the water when you put it in there, when I'm offering you fresh spring water? Just picture this here. God says, look, I am offering you, spiritually speaking, pure Fiji water that people pay a ton of money for, and you're like, no thanks, God, I got this covered. Look, I got a cistern. It's kind of green, it's got lots of bugs in it, and it might be infected with disease, but... Look, I did it myself. It's good. I've got spring water for you. No, I've got it covered, God. I'm fine. But your cistern leaks and mine's free and you don't have to work for it. No, I've got this covered. I'm good. God says, this is what you do every time you insist on doing things your way instead of following my way. You make your life way harder than it needs to be and in the end, it doesn't even work out for you. Why would you do that? Why would anyone do that? Though I know all of us have done that. Why would, why would, here, let me ask it a different way. Why does anyone sin if sin always leads to suffering and never works out? You ever thought about that? I mean, I get the whole thing that we were like kind of habitual sinners. We were born and we kind of learned to sin. And so once you've learned to sin, I, I get that. But on a deeper level, though, why would we go, I know this is the right way. I know this is the preferable way. This is a good, pleasing, perfect way. But I think I can figure it out this way. Why would I think... When we look at our choices that we've got, sin up front does look more appealing. Let's just be honest about that, right? There is a quick hit of pleasure with sin, or sin sometimes looks like a quick and easy way to get out of trouble. And so up front, it actually looks like the smarter thing. You know, God's way, I'm going to get in trouble if I do that, or it's not going to be as fun. What we find, though, over time is it's, it's an illusion. that We fall for it every time. Why do we do that? when God's way ultimately is more satisfying and does not lead to, to regret, we've all done that. We've all dug our cisterns and said, God, I got this one, thank you. And then we get to the end of it and we go, it leaks, it wasn't. Here's how you know that you're doing this in your life. I mean, if, if at the end of the day, you're just tired. I don't mean the end of the physical day. I just mean if right now, if you're in a stage of your life where you just realize things are not really going well, you got a bitter taste in your mouth from the consequences of what you're doing, if you're still thirsty even after you do everything you thought was the right thing to do, maybe you're not doing things God's way and maybe you ought to consider changing the way that you're going. You know, King Solomon reflected on his life of chasing after cisterns and he, he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes in our Bible. He called it chasing the wind. You know, where Jeremiah says it's digging empty cisterns, Solomon said it's like chasing the wind. It's just meaningless. All those things that we do that we think we know better than God. It's a... You ever done that? Chase the wind? I was running last fall on the Katy Trail, and I, 
I was ironically, I was listening to a sermon by Mike Bro about Ecclesiastes. He was talking about chasing the wind and Solomon's expression. I've taught about it myself. I've preached about it, but I've never actually chased the wind. I was running. It was kind of a windy fall day, and the leaves were blowing. I thought, here's my chance to actually chase the wind and see what that's like. So the next time a gust of wind came along, I, like, cranked it up. I, I'm sprinting for the next 30 seconds. I'm trying to chase the wind down the Katy Trail. You know what conclusion I came to? Chasing the wind is dumb. <laughs> really, it is. No matter how fast I ran, I was never going to catch it. In fact, I, I really thought this. is How will I know if I do catch it? And, and what am I going to do with it when I do catch the wind? If I ever catch it? It's an exercise in futility. And in that moment, it just went click. Every single time I try to do my, way, my thing my way instead of doing God's way, I'm chasing the wind. And it's never going to work out. Here's your homework for today. You ready for this? You don't even have to write this down. You're going to remember this. I want everybody to go home this afternoon and go outside in the backyard and chase the wind for a while. Or, or dig a cistern. Right? Wouldn't it be funny to see people all over St. Charles County just running around? What are you doing? I'm chasing the wind. What are you doing? I'm digging a cistern. <laughs> Actually, that wouldn't be very funny because there's probably people all over St. Charles County that are doing that. See, when we um, choose money and we make that our most important thing or success or we make that relationship the most important thing or popularity or, or fashion or pleasure or whatever, and you put your hope in that, and you've said, I'm going to pin my sense of satisfaction and happiness on getting this, it's going, to fi- it's going to be a cistern that leaks, it's going to be a chasing after the wind, and there's a whole lot of people who are doing that, and I'm not condemning them, but I want to say like Jeremiah does, please just stop chasing the wind, stop digging cisterns that cannot help you when God is offering you fresh spring water. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 13, If you don't listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears, because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. There's eventually going to be a consequence to all of this. You know, sometimes all a prophet can do is just stand back and weep, knowing that the people are heading in the wrong direction. Uh, Sometimes a parent, all they can do is go, I just have to watch you do this. As a friend, you have to watch your friend go the wrong way. Maybe you recognize in yourself, I'm going the wrong way. I just want to encourage you, find your satisfaction in God. You know what this is like, and all of you have experienced this. It's kind of like taking your kids to Disneyland or Disney World. You spend a ton of money on tickets to get there and the tickets themselves, or worse yet, maybe you spend 20 hours in a minivan driving there. And you get to Disney World, and you're there, and the kids are excited for like an hour. But you're in in Disney World, and for some reason you chose to go in July, and the sun is right here. And every other person in the whole world has decided to go to Disney World the day you went. And the kids are hot, and they're crabby, and it's tired, and after one or two hours of Disney fun, we're having fun, right? The kids are like, yeah, can we go back to the hotel and swim, Dad? And you're like, no, we're at Disney World. And as Jim Gaffigan says, I spent your college fund to do this, so we're going to have fun. And your kid's like, no, we want to go swimming. And you're like, no, don't you want to see Ariel and, and all the princesses and go to Cinderella's castle and, and watch the parade and, and drink $12 bottles of Kool-Aid and $60 T-shirts? We're having fun, right? And the kids are like, no. They want to do the thing that they could have done back home. They want to go swimming. And you're like getting this twitch behind your right eye. Ugh. Anybody else in my support group? <laughs> my kids were actually awesome at Disneyland I have, or Disney World. I have to say that. But I think if you can relate to some of that, you kind of get an idea of what God must feel like when he looks at us, and he's like, I've got something wonderful you, for you. And we're like, no, thanks. I'd rather go swimming in my cistern. No. I'm okay. 
Chasing the wind, digging cisterns, it doesn't work. I got a word for you today. If you feel like that's what you've been doing, it's time to come back to God and find your true soul satisfaction in him. Listen, this is not a message for them. Like you might think, oh, this is a great message for those people who are far from No, 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 I'm talking to us today. The people who said, I love Jesus Christ, I'm following Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been going to the cistern instead of the spring of God. Maybe you, I mean, you're not dying of thirst. You're just drinking really nasty water. Maybe today is the day you say, as I did when I became a Christian, I need to once again repent and turn back to my first love, which is God. I need to, to get back in the right track. You can do that today. I mean, it doesn't matter to God how far you think you've wandered. God just wants you to come home. So why don't we pray about that? Father, today, I don't want to leave Jeremiah's words back 2,500 years ago. I want them to be real to us today. So I'm just praying that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to our hearts. I pray that you would encourage us to do something with this. Just shine a bright light for each one of us in our own minds on those places where we've made something more important than you. Those places where we've, we've taken, uh, taken the shovel and started digging instead of finding our satisfaction in you. And, and I'm asking this not, Father, because I want you to embarrass us or that we, we want you to judge us or condemn us. You don't do that. I'm asking that you'll do that for all of us so that we can repent and turn to you and find, like, true satisfaction. And, Father, I pray that this would be a place where we don't condemn each other, we don't judge each other, but that as you've called us to do, that we accept each other while we're learning and growing and changing, that we encourage each other, that we speak the truth to each other, but that we're, at the same time, all aware that we've all done this. So, Father, I pray that you would, again, show us the love you have for us. Help us to make the right decision today. And I pray, Father, for anyone who is not uh, submitted to your son, Jesus Christ, as Lord, that they today would make that decision to become a Christian. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.